Welcome back to How to Tickle Yourself. I'm your host, Duff McDonald, along with my co-host, Matt McButter. We are extremely excited about this week's guest because she's one of those rare people that threads the needle between Duff and Matt's different ways of understanding the nature of reality. She is a scientist who studies spirituality. Better yet, she comes to us by way of our friend Malcolm Fitch, who introduced us to her. Her name is Dr. Lisa Miller. She's a professor and the founder of the Spirituality and Mind-Body Institute at Columbia University. She's the author of a handful of books, the most recent of which was The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality and Our Quest for an Inspired Life. In this wonderful book, an interweaving of her own deeply personal journey of awakening with her groundbreaking research, Dr. Miller argues that humans are universally equipped with a capacity for spirituality and that our brains become more resilient and robust as a result of it. This is where Matt is going to perk up. The awakened brain combines cutting edge science from MRI studies to genetic research, epidemiology, and more with on the ground application for people of all ages and all walks of life illuminating the surprising science of spirituality and how to engage it in our lives. Is there a better guest for this show? Welcome to the program, Lisa. We are delighted to have you. I am thrilled to be here and get to form a conversation that integrates all perspectives. There we go. present moment traveling town to town the mystery of the motion right here right now right here right now Whoa, right here right now So why don't we start with, I think there's um, one of the really interesting things to me in your book is you make a distinction. Uh, it's called the awakened brain. Uh, you make a distinction between achieving brains and awakened brains. And I, th I, I feel personally exactly uh, what you're talking about. Can you tell us about what the difference between those two is? Yes. Well, I would say in the air and water of our culture, and by our culture, I mean post-industrial global culture, um, we are trained very, very well. We are strengthened in our capacity for achieving awareness, by which is meant strategy, tactics, research, get A plus B plus C all lined up, best possible probabilistic way forward and go. And with that comes the deep latent view that what life is about itself is tactically closing the deal, getting what we want, setting our goals, figuring out the best way to achieve what we think we want, and then land the deal, make it happen. And that form of thinking, it's really a way of being, supposes that we actually have radical control. And it supposes that our goals are really the ultimate point of our being here on earth. And I think what we've all discovered through the past three years is that there's a bigger world for us. Yes, us together and each and every one of us. And it has to do 
with living through a different set of circuits in our brain. It has to do with opening a different door onto life, which is our awakened awareness. An awakened awareness calls on an entirely different set of understandings about who we are on earth, what is our point here, and how to then live each day. We shift the conversation from what do I want and how am I going to get it to, wow, I just didn't get it or I wanted it and I have it and now it's not good enough to, hey, what is life showing me now? What is life asking of me now? And for those of us who perceive a deep force through life, whether we say spirit or force in life, universe, some say God, Hashem, Allah, the universe, those who perceive that deep intentional presence in life might ask, what is God showing me now? What am I to become that life is asking me? This is a whole different way of being. It calls on a different, if you will, neuro docking station in our brain. And it's the very same neuro docking station in our brain that we actually honor people for using, for instance, when they are in times of trauma or when their lives are struggling in addiction, it is handing it over and being in a transcendent relationship. To the higher power. And that's another way of life. So in my, in Tickled, I have a chapter called The Trap of Time. And I make the point that uh, we get led astray by our belief that time is real and that we're actually, that we're doing something and that we can target a future goal or outcome. And it seems to me that you're talking about the same thing. The achieving brain thinks it's on a, it's got a plan, right? Whereas the awakened brain is right now, right? There's no tomorrow. There's right now. Right. We go from thinking we are makers of our path, achievers of our goals to actually discoverers of our journey. And every day is actually remarkably surprising when we simply choose to awaken to the more inspired presence in and through life. So yes, Beth, I completely agree that there's a hard radical materialism implicit in achieving awareness. And there's a very rigid notion of time as linear and forward moving. I think of time as existing-ish, which is to say that we can toggle between moments of achieving awareness into a deeper understanding where life I think of it as somewhat like a clover. We can loop back to the center of shared consciousness from when we were last here in 1622. And we can do another clover leaf and leap back into the consciousness with which we just shared with a fellow living being. And, you know, so there is a, a way in which I experienced time as organized in nodes of consciousness presence. Mm. Mm. So let's talk about the science part, because to me, this is one of the most fascinating things. Uh, you have a line in the book where you say the awakened brain includes a set of innate perceptual capacities that exist in every person through which we experience love and connection, unity, and a sense of guidance from and dialogue with life. That makes complete sense to me. How do you study that with science? What are you tracking? What are you measuring? What are you looking at when you're doing these MRIs, like to, on the one hand, it's like, it seems like you're looking for spirit. How do you, how do you measure spirit? And if you can't, what are you measuring? I am measuring the human docking station, the landing pad for spirit. 
So as a clinical scientist, I can't measure spirit. And I'll have to be, as a scientist, silent on the ultimate structure of the world out there. But I can tell you how we're built. And we are built to be in to have a neuro docking station, each and every one of us, innate, inborn, just like we have two eyes, two ears, and a nose on the day we're born. So people come up to me and they say, am I spiritual? And I don't even need to turn my head. The answer is yes, you were born spiritual. And so of course they say, well, what do you mean by spiritual? Mm -hmm. And what science can tell you is that you have an innate capacity through which you are in a transcendent relationship with life and through which you can feel this sacred transcendent relationship in our love for one another where you two gentlemen are my brothers, where the living beings in my yard are my brothers and sisters, that deep awareness where we feel and know a unity to life. And it's not just unity because we look the same. It's unity because we emanate from a source of love and oneness. Now, that that is all conjecture, though. I mean, that is all your theory and your hypothesis. And that part is not provable. Right. Because, I mean, well, thank I, you. Thank you, Matt. Let's be hair splittingly accurate. Science. Yes clinical science claims that we are built to perceive a transcendent relationship, whether we are spiritual, but not religious, Hindu, Muslim, Jewish, Catholic, Christian. We say nature is my cathedral. We have one awakened brain and we all have it. And what science can claim is that in the MRI, the same neural correlates run, whether we speak of prayer to Hashem, Jesus, God, or feel the force of life through the forest and the ocean, there is a neuro seat of transcendent awareness. And it is- Well, well calling it transcendent awareness, sorry, I, I have to continue to split hairs here. <laughs> calling it transcendent awareness feels to me like a, still a, a, a hypothesis. Like even though, you know, these uh, same neural pathways are firing across all these different, um, you know, individuals, different backgrounds, different religions, calling it different things. I mean, it seems to me that it's plausible that all of these pathways are firing because, you know, it's there's some evolutionary need for us to have some kind of social cohesion or something, right? Like it just because we're like, I don't know how you connect the two so conclusively and say, okay, now, um, you know, science now backs this up or we've empirically okay. determined that there I are cognitive pathways. Matt around here to be hair splittingly yeah. specific. And we love you, Matt. It's very important. What are the three things science says? Science says that every human being on earth has an innate capacity for a perception to see, feel, and know, to perceive a transcendent relationship. And we know that through twin studies, that there is a heritable contribution to our makeup. This is in us to perceive it. We're, we're getting to your point, Matt. I understand. We, science also says there is a universal neuro docking station, whether I am from China, India, the US, France, the North Pole, the South Pole, the same neuro docking station. And science says there are even the same experiential phenotypes through which we around the world have found ways to engage in transcendent awareness, prayer, meditation, experience, transcendent unitive oneness, and on the exit ramp have a sense of morals derived from who we really are to each other that includes foremost love of neighbor. So door number one is all the science showing that we are naturally wired to perceive and live in a transcendent relationship. Now, to your point, Matt, could we have made the whole thing up? And that's where the proof is in the pudding. 
One way is that we can look to ourselves as being knowers in many forms beyond narrowly radical empiricism and say, is intuition hard data? Is mystical experience hard data? Is a gut instinct hard data? And if we are willing to embrace epistemologies, inborn organic epistemologies, ways of knowing beyond radical materialism, that would be one reply. But I'm going to give you one that puts both feet, I think, in the epistemological stomping ground of your question, which was radical materialism, hard-nosed scientist, Matt, we need you. And here's the answer. There was a scientist named Achterhoff, and she did the first study of what now has become the body of post-material consciousness-based scientists, followed up by people like Dean Radin, who I think you might love, and Gary Schwartz, all sorts of folks. But she really put the stake in the ground. And here's what Achterhoff did. She put a traditional, she happened to be in Hawaii, indigenous Hawaiian healer in MRI number one, in building number one. And then she put the patient for whom the healer was, on whom the healer was working in MRI number two, that was actually not just next door, but in the next building of building number two. As the healer started to do his or her traditional transcendent form of healing, a predictable pattern came onto the MRI time and time again. So Matt, where I have something to offer you in a response is that within an instant, the same pattern came up on the MRI of the patient in a separate MRI in a separate building. One thing, healing consciousness, manifest in two heads in two places, superposition, non-locality of consciousness. Now, I perceive that she was tapping into source, but Matt, we have not gotten the scientists onto that question. What we can say is that the healing consciousness was materially manifest at a distance and that consciousness exists independent of matter and yet is expressed in matter. Now, now our, I mean, I, a couple questions about that study. I mean, has it been replicated by any other researcher or this is a... So researchers have taken different spins on this study. The objective is to show that consciousness exists independent of matter. So that, for instance, another experiment is that we put Matt in one booth, which is shielded from any form of electrical transmission through the walls. And we put Duff in the other sealed room. And as Matt starts to look upon a set light, the light goes on, the light goes off. These are very reductive, clean, elegant experiments. When the light goes on and Matt perceives the light over there, Duff perceives it too at the same moment by measured by hitting a bar or you understand. So there's a sense that your perceptions are not only in your head, they are entered into a consciousness field that can be tapped into by others, foremost those with whom you are bonded, your buddy Duff. Hmm. And that's Colin. wild. So that that scientists are hot on the heels of that, and it's a new area. Um, I published the Oxford University Press Handbook of Psychology and Spirituality, and the final section is post-material consciousness science. And there are rigorous, curious scientists digging in to exactly what you're asking, because really, Matt, your question is at the crest of the wave. You are at the right at the cutting edge of where science is now starting to sail. All right. So I have, um, I want to shift gears slightly. 
because in addition to your um, uh, scientist credentials and the sort of stuff that you put in the awakened brain, the other part of that book is your personal story, which is the experiential part. And um, to me, it's what makes the book uh, as engaging as uh, it is because you can you can feel what's happening to you as you're doing all this research and going through various stages in life too and there's a there's a there's a line i wanted to read that you were talking about um and this goes back to the achieving versus awakened brain you were talking about your early life in new york city uh not long after graduation from college i guess and you said the following, and I think this will ring true for a lot of people. Uh, among successful friends who had the educations, opportunities, jobs, friends, and romantic partners they'd always wanted, it seemed from our conversations that there was, an em- that there was still an emptiness, a near constant craving, a sense that life was not as meaningful or joyful as it might have been, as though we were on a never-ending staircase toward fulfillment, happiness always just out of reach. And that, that hit me like an anvil on the head when I was reading it. I was like, oh my God, that is the sense, like the existential um, question that sort of hung or hovered over me for a lot of my 20s and 30s, just sort of wondering what this is all about. Um, you had the same thing about... Um, when you were trying to get pregnant for the first time and you were said that became our state of being waiting for something that never came. And to me, the fact that you have sort of managed to interweave the two of them, um, is sort of the, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? We can read and hear about spirituality all we want, but unless you experience it, uh, it's just an intellectual conversation. Um, how did you decide to write the book that way? Right? Like as an academic, uh, there must've been part of you that would have been scared shitless of adding your own stuff into it, but it works beautifully. It works wonderfully. I think that by talking about science, by using the sort of 10,000, 20,000 foot aerial view out the window of the airplane, we can see patterns and we know things to be true of the chorus of human experience, but it's really in our own lived journey that we deeply know things. Uh, and I can share an example of you with, uh, with you. My parents, my mother's a very spiritual and religious woman. Um, she's Jewish. She lights the Shabbat candles and she tears with love as she prays every Friday night. God, thank you for the family. Thank you for the sunset because you light candles as the sun sets. And so I grew up as a child knowing through my mother that the spiritual reality is real, right? That's a different way of knowing than I now know as a scientist looking out the airplane window at the patterns of human experience. But it is a complementary and highly important form of knowing. And I would say it actually is the process of knowing through which I have been able to persist 
against, you know, hundreds of edgy radical materialists in the first 10 years when I was junior in my career. It was a deep knowing. My father is an artist. My father directs plays and he was always very skeptical and curious and not so sure about ultimate reality, how it was built and what to call it. But he lived a form of, I would say, transcendent knowing as all artists do in a receptive form of transcendent awareness, the catch and the catcher's mitt through which inspiration or the muse comes or the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. So when my, when I was nine, nine, my father was in his early forties and his mother died very young of breast cancer. It was before it was usually treated. And I remember very clearly my father's grief at the funeral and we all turned in that night. Um, And that morning I woke up as I always did at four or 5 AM, but to my surprise, he was up too. And he was sitting on the living room floor on the carpet, not on the couch, in a sort of almost upward fetal position, his arms, a 40-something-year-old dad who I looked up to, arms wrapped around his knees. And I looked, I couldn't believe it was there. And he looked at me and in the most open-hearted, open-handed way, said, you know, Grandma Ellie was in my dream last night. And I sat down next to him on the carpet and he said, you know, in my dream, and he's sort of trying to grab hold of what he'd experienced. There was grandma Ellie and she loved, we know, to dress up in beautiful clothes and jewelry, but here she was in an everyday plain gray suit that she often would wear privately with just the family. And there grandma Ellie and I were walking. We were walking down the sidewalk of Grand Avenue in Des Moines, Iowa, where he'd been raised. And he looked at me and he said, so I take this to mean that grandma had always walked by my side. She'll continue to walk by my side. She'll always be my mother. It was so raw. That is how I know our ancestors walk with us. Yes, I've looked out the airplane window and I can tell you that, you know, those who perceive their ancestors are at 80% decreased risk for depression, that they, they go through bereavement. And I mean, I can tell you through the lens of science where in the brain we see this and how our lives are so much better if we can and own it. But I know it's true in an ultimate ontological sense because my father said so. And that's a form of deep transmission of human knowing that elevates intuition, mysticism, synchronicity, the forms of knowing that complement radical materialism. And actually, you know, Duff and Matt, you'll find this interesting. When we look at people who use multiple forms of knowing, at the inner table is their own empiricist, logician, mystic, intuitive, and skeptic. They literally pave the highways. They myelinate the tracks between more regions of the brain, which in the index of neuroscience means a more innovative, creative brain. So if we can ask, you know, receive an experience like my father's dream, where some people get a smack between the eye, mystical or synchronistic experience, and then discern as my father was working on that early morning, its significance and what it means with logic, unfurl its high pixel meaning. Then we literally have a better brain. It is more able to have innovative, creative solutions. It is more able to adapt. I work with the Pentagon very extensively. We call it situational awareness. We can be prepared and ready, get through that door. And on the other side, wow, it is very different than what we had planned. Situational awareness. Many, many very fine 
um, highly skilled people will say the most important decision in my life. It wasn't what we planned for it. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think, I mean, science or the radical materialists that kind of dominate the scientific field will ever, will ever be amenable to this type of thinking? I mean, it, it just seems like it, 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 it goes, it, it, it's almost contrary to the scientific method to include such, you know, other ways of knowing. So Matt, that's really such, that is the precious, you're shining a light forward in the dark cave for where we can go in the next 10, 20 years. And the question is, can different forms of knowing be complementary or do they need to be perceived by the scientific community as somehow necessarily divergent? And you know, Matt, I think you're on to something, which is the little tiny secret of scientists, which is 70% of scientists when asked, asked about their best work, say, yes, you know, the method, the article, the landmark article that defines their, you know, field changing contribution. The method was very straightforward. The rollout of science was radically, you know, logical and empirical and standard in it. But the question the question that was the breakthrough question often came through inspiration, a sense of the muse hitting, being hit on the head with an apple, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And whether that that is 75% of scientists who've had a meaningful field-changing contribution. So I think that scientists have an opportunity as culture has evolved to embrace more forms of transcendent awareness to really be a little bit more reflective and forthcoming about their own range of knowing and inspiration. I, I think that science is an excellent method. It's a perfectly good method. It's never been a limiting method. What's been limiting is the culture of scientism, that vogue of mm -hmm. scientists. Mm -hmm. I read a great book a couple of years ago called Scientism, which was a collection of essays. And it was startling. I was like, oh, that's the issue. It's not science. It's a, it's this sort of dogmatic adherence to um, scientism. There's a line from your book where you make this very point beautifully. You say, we get to choose our stance. We can use logic to arrive at answers. And rigorous thought does yield necessary information. We can also check in with our inner knowing and choose our guiding perspective on life. So it's like, why not both, right? I have a, li I have a line I wanted to read for you. I was reading one of my favorite uh, uh, yogis uh, is a Vedantist. His name is Ramesh Balsakar. I was reading this book yesterday called Your Head in the Tiger's Mouth. And... He's talking about science and, and wh where it stops. And this is to the point you were just making. Um, and the, the only preface I need to say is that, so he refers to in the, someone asked him a question and in the question they're referring to it, which is the force, right? The, the thing beyond that Matt says is conjecture. So <laughs> the question is, science wants to comprehend and understand it does not understand that it is incomprehensible. And Balsakar's response was, that's right. So only when the science truly comes to the point when it understands that this is impossible to penetrate, will that science come to a stop 
and the scientist will become a mystic. Right? So that's the, that's the chasm you need to jump over or what you're saying we need to culturally jump over. It's happening, right? Isn't it? Well, and can we jump back and forth? I mean, you yeah. know, can we perceive and experience a sacred mystical existence and at the same time discern the implications of this great mystical symphony in our own lives and how we might speak and treat one another. So I think the landing pad of this profound reality in our human lives is this beautiful point of integration where all forms of knowing are needed. Mm-hmm. I actually agree. I mean, I, I, I really do agree, but I just feel that there, there's an incompat- um, almost an inherent incompatibility of these Mm-hmm. of these of of these different not just ways of knowing but um adherence to these different ways of knowing right like there there there's an incompatibility where it's it's hard to reconcile i mean i think you almost uniquely do it lisa like there i i, I don't think but there aren't there are few people that i think are able to reconcile these these two kind of modes of thought or ways of ways of comprehending what all this is. Well, it's such a beautiful point because can we in our schools and in our public square honor and listen to multiple forms of knowing? Can we be ecumenical around ways of knowing? And I think if we are, then we'll get the very best of people's wisdom on the table, whether that's in a creative process or in a schoolroom or a boardroom. We only get a third of a person if we say you're only allowed to talk in this building through the lens of empiricism and logic. And over here, you can, you can whisper at your luncheon or in your house of worship, you can talk openly about mystical experience. But if we can truly embrace within each of us and one another an interest, I want to know you and I want to hear your most important experience. It's breathtaking, this journey we're on. It is absolutely awesomely jaw-dropping. I'll give you an I- example. Go ahead, please. No, no, please continue. I think that we need to give each other license the way you both welcome a guest and they speak their mind and we explore it from all sides, right? I think we can do this in the public square. You're modeling a way of being where we can really hear each other out. And I'll I'll give you an example. I was on the American Psychological Association governing board for several years. And we used to have interminably long meetings in the basement of hotels in DC. And so on a break in the middle of one of these meetings, a gentleman who was known as being a foremost expert in bereavement pulled me aside. And when I say pulled me aside, I mean like way over to the corner by the water fountain. And I thought, wow, you know, he must be telling me something very private. And he looks at me and he said, I want to tell you something, Dr. Miller. He said, I, I have actually been married before and my wife, she died very young and it was hideous. She had cancer and it was grueling and it was horrifying. And I, we were so in love and I was heartbroken in a way that I couldn't begin to hold. And when she passed, my friends were so worried about me that they had me live in their basement on a mattress because they wanted to make sure I'd be okay. And I laid there. I didn't get up. I didn't leave the basement for weeks. They'd bring me down food. I was in horrible bereavement. He said, but then one night, suddenly I sat up and I saw her. I saw her outline and it was numinous. It was energetic. 
And she came towards me, this outline, and more towards me. And then she entered my body. And I had her in my heart. And from then I woke up and I was able to rejoin the world of the living because I knew she was in me, that love. Her being was in me forever. And I said, I am deeply moved and touched by that story. Thank you for telling me. When did that happen? He said, well, I want you to know I've never told anyone about this before. And I repeated the question, when did it happen? And he said, that was 30 years ago. The national expert on bereavement had a life-changing mystical experience that opened his life. And he felt unable in the public square yeah. to express the most important healing, illuminating, ontologically revealing moment of his life. That so, is fascinating. I mean, but I, on that, yeah, because... It would ruin. It would have ruined his career, right? I mean, if if like I, I honestly believe that, or that right? was his fear. That was his fear. That was his fear. Mm, I, I, I would argue it. It probably would have been damaging. I mean, you think it would have been damaging, right? Because I, I think there are people that would dig the, you know, radical materialists, as you call it, or like the the the, the scientists out there would have all called him a flake and would have said you know what, this isn't part of the conversation. This isn't, this is not so part of our, Matt, this is not, yeah. He didn't pull that out of a hat. You're absolutely right, man. He pulled you over even 30 years later. He pulled you over to the water fountain away out of earshot of everybody else for a reason. You're absolutely right. There was profound, and there is still, radical materialism amongst scientists. It's not in our method, but in our culture and vogue, it's still there. But that said, you know, the walls came crumbling down with COVID and psychology can't do its job now with only radical materialism. And here's why. 46% of young adults and people in all decades, but young adults are crossing the bridge of formation in their deep being. So 46% as of this September, not a year or two back, meet at least a moderate level, which is clinically significant, impairing, painful of a disease of despair, addiction, depression, anxiety, and the rate of suicide surpasses the rate of death by auto accident. So a high schooler no longer is most likely to die of a car crash or cancer or COVID. The pandemic here now for high school people, young and college students are the diseases of despair and suicide. And it is not because we're understaffed alone. We don't have the methods of ushering young adults through the full formation of being, which includes the awakening of the spiritual heart. We do not know how in psychology, some we're doing it more and more at the Spirituality Mind Body Institute. There's a few other places more and more, but as a field, we need to radically take which has been one arm of psychology and put it right into the epicenter of psychology and say, healing is a process of post-traumatic spiritual growth. Depression is a knock at a door for an awakening of a deeper spiritual awareness. Mm. We've got to get the spiritual core into the whole person. And we needed to have done it a year ago, but now is good. Yeah. Instead of just prescribing. <laughs> yes. well, yogis will tell you it's meditation is your answer. Meditation right? is a magnificent way in. And so too is prayer. And do you know of all the dimensions of spiritual life, one of the most powerful on awakening the natural spiritual brain is love of neighbor, service. So if someone's really stuck, 
And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they go next door and they help their neighbors shovel out and they shop for the elders and they help people. They will start to develop a deeper sense of the reality, a perception of the reality that we are connected in love. Yeah. Hmm. What a great message this time of year. <laughs> I also Especially. think that, yeah, but echoing your point about COVID, uh, and I make this point in Tickled, uh, you know, for a hot minute there, time seemed to stop because our calendars were obliterated at least for a few weeks, right? In, in very early quarantine. And, you know, if it was Monday, it didn't matter what was going on Tuesday in terms of your calendar because you weren't doing anything. You were going to be at home again. And so at least for me, um, the, 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 the ceasing of the sort of head spinning, what is coming uh, what am I doing tomorrow? What are we doing next week? When that all went away, um, I found myself focused on what was happening to me uh, in a much more profound way than I ever had before. And to your point, Lisa, suddenly I was like, oh my God, this is way better than I thought, right? And which is a key point, than I thought. And I suddenly was inhabiting my own life because I because the distractions went away, and I think for mo so many people, like we're we're t we're still. If you open the New York Times, they're still counting COVID deaths, right? And but for so many people, if we can get to the point of like, what positive changes have entered your life since COVID? It's got to be almost everybody, right? There may have been some struggles and frustrations and what have you, but. I find it very hard to believe that um, unless people were in a you know completely crazy situation where they couldn't even center themselves, that people made some decisions and stopped doing some things that they uh, shouldn't have been doing and started doing some things that they should. Because we had a moment where we where we weren't yanked uh, out of presence by our constant, as you said earlier on, you know, adherence to this sort of linear concept of time. Right, that something's coming that we ca we can't put all our focus on right now. I think I think, and I've said this before, and it, it's my guess is it's not a most popular, uh, hugely popular point, but COVID's one of the greatest things that ever happened to humanity. You know, the people who died, no. The people who lost loved ones, no. The rest of us, yes. So. Well, and, and I'll share with you, of course, we mourn the death of those who you know, we lost. And still it is the case that we did have an awakening. You know, in the, the path of a human life, there's a developmental depression. There's a despair that is the gateway to awakening. And as a collective, that was our despair. That was the crumbling of the things that we were so clinging so tightly to. Our institutions will protect us. Our institutions are who we are. Actually, they all crumbled. <laughs> they, all, they literally shut their door. It's kind of it's, it's kind of like COVID was like our our societal collective societal rock bottom, right? Yes. Like you know how you have to hit rock bottom. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, yes, we bottomed out. Yes, yeah. yes. And so in that moment of wow, well, what then is real? And hey, I'm still buoyant. You know, my big institutional attachment it just fell apart. And oh, there went my money. And oh, you know, but what I'm buoyant. 
I'm buoyant. What is catching me? And hey, with this stillness of which you speak of and this moment of bottoming out, as you say, Matt, there, look who's standing. There's this lovely, what I might call messenger, sacred trail angel at my door. You know, there's something beautiful being shown to me here. Um, can we do a practice that's about this? Yeah. Okay, okay super. Um, this is practice I call the road of life. Okay. I'm going to invite you to just close your eyes, take five breaths, clear out your inner space. I invite you to think of a time where you wanted something so badly and it was yours and you earned it. You did everything right. A plus B plus C, strategically, tactically, you researched it. And you went for your red door. It was yours. You wanted it and it's your, you grab the handle, you reach and it's stuck. And you can't believe it's stuck because you did everything right. And it doesn't seem fair. And you might kick it, be furious, maybe in time fall off and feel depressed. But only because your red door was stuck. Did you shift 40 degrees, 80, 180 degrees? And over there, over there was a bright, radiant, open yellow door. And you may have never seen yellow doors or not thought they existed, but that yellow door, you walked through that yellow door. You did a hairpin turn, walked over the threshold, and on the other side of this landscape was a job even better, was a person who spoke more deeply, was a way of being in the world that was far more full of light and possibility because you walked through the yellow door. And I invite you to sit back and reflect your stuck red door, your hairpin turn on the way to the open yellow door. Was there anyone who said anything, told you or something you read? It could have been a two minute discussion on the bus or at the coffee shop. It could have been a story told for the first time by your father or child but you had a trail angel pointing the way to the yellow door. And so as you now reflect on who you are now and the most important parts of your life, and you look at the stuck red door, the hairpin turn, the trail angel leading to the wide open yellow door, how is life really built? The most important transformative directive parts of our life that have everything to do with who we are now. And where is the force in and through all life, the source? You may call God, the universe, spirit, Jesus, Hashem, life force itself. Is the higher power in the stuck red door and the open yellow door? The trail angel, the hairpin turn in you in a dialogue with your road of life? And have you been on a spiritual path in a dialogue all along? That's great. Everything is connected. Everything. I believe it. So we had a big hairpin turn with COVID 
And I think we're discovering a brighter world. You know, I'm very tired of the outgrown narrative that we hear things are so bad. You know, I mean, our grandparents had a much more volatile world when they were off to fight in World War II. And, you know, our parents being sent to Vietnam had a much more volatile world. This is this narrative is 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 does not map onto the reality I see, which is mm -hmm. this time of awakening. It is a splendid renaissance. And you are holding the types of conversations that can populate our lives, you know, into this renaissance where we are in dialogue with mystical and synchronistic and rigorous empirical and logical knowledge all at once, the big ecumenical embrace that will let us see the, the interconnectedness, but it, but it is a valuative, loving, sacred interconnectedness where we can walk on the earth in the right way and not drop toxic chemicals in the water and not think because someone's 2000 miles away, the bomb didn't hit us. You know, the, we're one being in this loving unit of reality and we're getting it and you're helping to escort us in this type of conversation. 360, we need you both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, wow. I'm in. Yeah, I'm here. So for, for, for listeners, uh, the awakened brain is not the only book that Lisa's written. She also wrote, uh, the spiritual child, the new science of parenting for health and lifelong thriving about, uh, instilling your, your children with a, with a spiritual sense. Um, do we have, we got anything coming down the pike? Got another one coming? Well, right now I try to use the books as a tool to collaborate with fellow brothers and sisters to make meaningful societal change, to see a more spiritually aware society. And so we're working, you know, I've worked for three years with the Pentagon using the science in the awakened brain. I've worked with um, universities, awakened campus global, because this is a global post-industrial wake up. And I'm excited about where we're going together and that this, you know, there's no one walk that is the spiritual walk. There are multiple walks on one spiritual earth and we're going together. In fact, it's the only way we're going to get there together. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, um, and finally I'm looking here. If, if you, if listeners want to check it out, uh, Lisa Miller, phd.com is Dr. Miller's, um, website. Uh, it'll tell you a bunch about the books. It also has a bunch of interviews and stuff on it. Uh, Lisa, this was amazing. This oh, was my, thank you. And my kids got me on Instagram. It's dr. Lisa Miller. <laughs> All right. So we got Instagram too. Au courant. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, taking the time today. This is amazing. And, um, the awakened brain for listeners, it's a wonderful book. Uh, as, as we've talked about for most of the hour, it bridges, um, a bunch of gaps that, that seem uncrossable. Um, and then, and, in doing so opens up the, uh, uh, you know, possible pathway for, uh, what Dr. Miller's talking about here. Um, having the whole conversation and having the, um, um, you know, a complete way of thinking that isn't segmented into different, different modes and different types. So, um, thanks for your, thanks for joining us today. This is amazing. Thanks Thank so you, much. Malcolm. Thanks, Malcolm, for setting this up. We love you, too. Yes, we love you, Malcolm. And I now love you, Duff and Matt. You are my brothers. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Wonderful.
Okay, so uh, that is Dr. Lisa Miller. She's great. Um, yeah. You know uh, me. I mean, I, I love the people that we talk to that are kind of the 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 bridge people, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the also like just her her like deep understanding of of like epistemology in general makes her like the perfect guest, right? And for the uninitiated, that word means like ways of knowing, right? And so there's the scientific method and empirical ways of knowing because it's something that you there's evidence of, and then there's you know sort of introspection things that you just kind of get from from inside you. There's something that someone else tells you, right? An authoritative source tells you that, therefore yeah. you believe it. In- and all these different things. things inference. Like yeah, all these things. But I, I I just like the way that she she's actually synthesized all of these um and, and has a deep understanding of all of these kind of, you know, epistemological meth- methods and and she's just so good at articulating them and and mm-hmm. and bridging them too. I mean, yeah, no, it's fascinating. She's a really great guest. Great energy too. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, she. What you just said reminds me of something that that Joey's always said. It's like we get stuck in these either or situations, yeah. right? Yeah. And one of Joey's go to lines is, "Why not both?" Yeah. Why not? Why not both? Well, people are extremely binary in in all of their like you know decisions and views. I mean, look at people's political views, and look at how many people have like partisan are like extremely partisan, right? To the point of where it's like demonizing Republicans, demonize all Democrats. It's like they're all, you know, awful and vice versa. Uh, Whereas like, it's almost like I, I, and I feel like it's gotten worse with uh, social media and the internet, like where I feel like it's become more polarized. Like there's no nuance anymore. There's absolutely no nuance in political discourse. And I think that, crosses over into, you know, the discourse and conversation that we're having here too, where people just become very firmly in, in, entrenched in their camps. You know, where I their- first, you know where I first noticed that? In headline writing on the internet. So headline writing in magazines, you know, historically there was always a kind of artfulness to it. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, the, the headline wasn't necessarily going to explain to you precisely the contents of the story and something happened on the internet where it's like how to wrap your presence with with only three pieces of tape right and that's the headline and so we've (laughs) lost the nuance in um in storytelling uh as part of that shift that you're talking about could you forward that to me though because i got some wrapping to do and that sounds like pretty useful article (laughs) i wish i yeah i wish i knew (laughs) All right, I've got one for you. I've got two for you. Um, so we talked in a recent episode. I mentioned that movie Enola Holmes. Yeah. Uh, and the Matchmaker's Ball. There was another one from it too. And this one's great because as a Dylan fan, it, it's just wonderful. So you know the uh, band uh, movie, The Last Waltz. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah, Scorsese. Right? Scorsese and yeah, you know, it's Dylan's brilliant. All over it. It's so good. Yeah. So there was in Enola Holmes, there was some Victorian party, right? And they all had dance cards, right? So people are walking around saying, Could I get your fifth dance yeah. or whatever? <laughs> and then at some point during the party, someone announces the last waltz. Oh, wow. And I, and I was like, yeah. Oh. It's from 
they they would basically be saying this is the last dance. It's the last dance, it's the last waltz. I didn't realize that that was actually a thing. Hmm. You know, I I also remember just by, uh, on that same kind of note. I remember, or I've heard, I've heard people use the saying like my dance card is full. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like to mean like my schedule is full. It's like oh, you know. Next week, do you think we get uh, together for lunch? No, my dance card's full next week. Yeah, so they right? actually had dance cards because it was so formal. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so here's another one for you. Totally different, um, coming from a totally different place. So words are energy, right? Everything's energy. Um, the yogis talk about the power of mantra, right? And where they, you know, repeat various mantras. They're supposed to, uh, you know, have um, uh, magic powers. Uh, but essentially words are energy and they cast spells, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's why they call it spelling. Spelling. You think that's why they call it spelling? Yes. That's because yes, you're actually casting a spell. Yes. And so if you misspell something, yeah. you're, 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 you've kind of broken the, yeah, you're not, you're not doing, you're, you're not going to have the power, you're not doing magic anymore. Right. You just, I've forgotten. It. I've forgotten most of the spells. This time of year, we usually watch the Harry Potter films like straight through as a family. And, uh, and I, I used to know them. Most of those spells, Wingardium Leviosa is the only one I'm, it's coming to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Expelliarmus, Expelliarmus. That's, that's Harry's go-to. He's always right. Expelliarmus, right? It's like, it seems, it seems like a pretty obvious one. <laughs> Get thee away from me, Satan. Basically, uh, no. Expelliarmus is where you you uh, you you knock the wand out of the other guy. Same right? thing, right? Yeah. Take take, <laughs> take, take your take your black magic yeah. away. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, um, we were talking about time and enjoying your reality. Um. Instead of Ori Binda, we have some Ramesh Balsakar, who I mentioned during the episode. He's got this great book called Your Head in the Tiger's Mouth. Um, and he's talking about something in there. This is a yogic term. It's called the Mahabogi, B-H-O-G-I. It's called the super enjoyer. <laughs> um, and I made this point in Tickled where I was like, once everything got quiet, suddenly like the burger was the best burger I ever had, or this was the best book I ever read, or this is the most beautiful sunset I've ever seen. And there was a moment where I was like, what is happening to me? Everything, everything is supposedly the best ever. But here's uh, Balsakar talking about the Mahabogi. He says, when the awakened sage is enjoying a meal, there is great satisfaction because he isn't comparing it to something he had earlier, nor is he wondering whether when he will have it again. There is nothing but simple, direct enjoyment with no individual enjoyer, just enjoyment itself. And it reminded me, it's like, okay, if we can stop spinning our heads with time, right? And, you know, think about it. When you go out for dinner and people have a, have a great dish as often as not, they start talking about another dish that they had that was comparable to that one. So Mm -hmm. our response to a great soup is, Oh my God, remember that other soup we had? Um, 
And that's because we believe in time. And we also believe that, you know, hopefully this will keep happening. I'll have this pleasure again. But when you when you get time out of your mind, you end up being able to being in a place of pure enjoyment of your own existence that Lisa was talking about that. Right. She's basically saying this is a mind blowing thing that's happening to you if you can only pay attention. So what you want to be is a Maha Bogey, the super enjoyer. That's my new goal. You know what, Duff? I think this might be the best episode we've ever recorded. Without question. Thank you, Lisa Miller. Thank you, Malcolm Fitch. We'll be back with you in a week. Bye bye. present moment traveling town to town the mystery of the motion right here right now right here right now whoa right here right now You've been listening to How to Tickle Yourself with your hosts, Duff McDonald and Matt McButter. You can help us by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with others. You can talk to us and see what else is happening on Instagram and Facebook at How to Tickle Yourself. This program was recorded in Studio B of the historic Rockledge Recording Studio and the Tunnel Under Arundel. Right here, right now, our original 16-part theme music was written and recorded by the legendary Paul Reddick and Kyle Ferguson of The Sidemen with the brilliant Steve Mariner on bass and drums and in the mixing room. The podcast is produced and distributed by Storic Media. Our editor is Andrew Steiner. Our coordinator is Samantha Abramovitz. Our producers are Kristen Verbitsky and Chuck LaBella. For more information, visit storicmedia.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-C media.com. My love, my dear.